Thanks, Eric. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. You didn't come forward yet, did you, ushers? We're going to take a second offering today because <laughs> I need a vacation. No, I'm sorry. So you guys already did that. You guys are fast. I must have been praying deeply spiritual over here in the front row while you're doing that. All right. I love communion. Thanks for taking that. We're in the habit of doing that once a month in here now. And to me, that's just church in a nutshell because everybody, whether you're queer or straight, young, old, rich, poor, takes place in the body of Christ, takes or participates in the body of Christ. So I just love that. So thank you people that help us put it on there every month. All right. We are making our way through the book of Mark in here on Sunday mornings. It's the fourth week. I will just finish chapter one today, okay? There is so much good stuff crammed into this short, tiny little book. And today is all about two words, alonement, which is a made-up word, but it's a cool word, and splagitsumai, which is not a made-up word, but it sounds like a made-up word. So let's start with alonement. I'm going to read out of Mark chapter one, verses 35 through 39. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. So evidently, Jesus was a morning person. I'm not. I'm not fond about that as far as Jesus. I don't know why he is, but he is. He left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. It was hard for Jesus to be alone. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everybody is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. What a great verse. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons just on the side. That's what he did too, okay? Now, in these verses, we read about Jesus spending time in solitude and silence. And when you read through the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see that this was a habit for him. He did this all the time. It was a customary practice. Not so much for us. We live in a noisy culture, and we don't tend to place much emphasis on silence, and it's hurting us. I want to play a video for you. Some of you saw it. It was years ago, and it's a video of a church much like ours, and the worship leader is this sweet young lady, just like Jesse, leading worship, and she's leading a song called Oceans, which is a quiet, kind of reflective song. We used to sing it in here, too. And then all of a sudden, the drummer kicks in. And I want you to see what happens to this song when there's too much noise and not enough quiet. Just listen to this. Okay, you can cut it. That poor woman, it goes on forever. He just goes off. Thank you, Sean and Pete and all of our drummers in here for never doing that. But just like music can be ruined when there's too much noise and not enough silence, not enough quiet, our lives can be ruined when there's not enough quiet too. 
central to the Christian tradition that we're a part of for thousands of years have been the disciplines of meditation, of silence, and of reflection. It was understood for thousands of years that in order to be a healthy person, in order to be a person that really connects to God on a deep level, you have to spend significant time in solitude and silence, just like Jesus was modeling for us here times that some people have referred to as alonement. They made up that word, but what a great word. And without alonement, we end up just swimming in the shallow end of the pool spiritually. I thought about silence, though, in prepping this message. There is there are so many different types of silence. There's the silence of being in a room all by yourself, just an empty room. There's also the silence of being in a full room that was noisy and then suddenly goes quiet, like when you're at the Holt Center and the orchestra is just about to strike that first note and there's this deafening silence that envelops the room. There's also a time when I remember, I went to watch the movie Schindler's List quite a few years ago. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It is a tearjerker. And you go into the room, there's hundreds of people, and you're loud, you're laughing, you're joking, you're teasing people, you're talking, you're munching on your popcorn, and then you watch the movie, and you walk out in silence. Nobody speaking words, the quietest I've ever heard a movie theater. There's a silence that connects, there's a silence that separates, there's a silence we embrace, there's a silence we fear. In any relationship you're in, there can be silence that's actually toxic, like when you speak those harsh words to a loved one, and then you spend the next few hours just walking around in frustration and actually a little bit of angst and sorrow. That's a silence, all right, but it's not a good silence, it's a silence that's toxic. There are also tender moments of silence. When you're sitting next to someone you deeply love and you're, you're totally communicating your affection for this person, but words aren't necessary. You're just doing it through your sheer presence. I was watching the Super Bowl a few weeks ago, like many of you were, and I love the commercials. And there was one scene in one commercial. There was a couple of commercials that were just emotional for me. That one, Loretta. Did you see that? <laughs> You're kidding me, right? But then there was another called New York Life, and it's called Love Takes Action. And there's just, it describes the four words that are actually used in the Bible for love. And then at the very last scene, there's this photograph, and I don't know if you even caught it. Look at that. They don't need words, do they? That's just a tender moment of silence. There are also anxious moments of silence, like when you're in a hospital waiting room. We've all been in that situation. And then there are these stunned moments of silence, like when you're hiking to Saheli Falls on a sunny day and you look down at the bottom where the mist is created by the falls and the sun shines on it at just the right angle and a rainbow appears. And you have no words in that moment. For the most part, though, we avoid silence because, quite honestly, many of us are afraid of silence. We're afraid for many reasons. Many of us are afraid because when we're in solitude and silence, it can feel incredibly lonely, and loneliness scares us, and I get that. And also when we're silent, we become aware of what I call our shadow selves, all these negative experiences and memories and situations that we've tucked down into the deep recesses and corners of our heart, and they've been tucked down there for so long we forgot they're even there. But in times of solitude and silence, they tend to bubble up to the surface, these memories do, and they scream at us, deal with me. You've stuffed me away in a corner for too long, and now you're going to deal with me. There's some other reasons we're afraid of the silence. They have to do with our relationship with God. 
Some of us are afraid to be silent because we think, if I enter into solitude and silence, God's going to speak something to me, and he's going to speak something I don't really want to hear. Like maybe he'll say, you know, it's about time that you, you start walking through the difficult process of forgiveness with this person that's hurt you so deeply. And we don't want to hear that, do we? Because they're creepy and they're jerks and we don't want to forgive them. Who would, all right? Or maybe he'll speak to you and say, you know what? You need to serve your community or your city or your church in some way that stretches you and feels uncomfortable. Or maybe he'll speak to you and say, you know, it's about time you start reconsidering your financial priorities. What are you really spending your money on? What's going to be lasting and eternal? Those kind of things, stuff like that. Or maybe we're not afraid of what God will speak to us Maybe we're afraid of the silence because we're, we're afraid that God won't say anything at all. We'll pray and we'll fill up the prayer time with our words and then we'll be in silence to try to hear God and nothing. Just crickets. What are we supposed to do with that, okay? We can't let fear stop us. Silence is just too important. The kind of silence that Jesus modeled for us here was a holy silence. It was a time to empty ourselves of the chaos of our lives and replace it with something better because good stuff fills our life in the silence. And I want to name a few for you today. The first thing that happens in these times of holy silence is our strength is restored. I want to read a famous few verses out of Isaiah chapter 40. It's this Old Testament prophecy. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. And here's the famous part. He gives strength to the weary and increases power of the weak. Even youths, young people, grow tired and weary, and young people stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, or the actual word there is weight upon the Lord, will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not be faint. Let's leave that up there for just a while if we can, Patrick. In ancient Hebrew poetry, things always proceeded from the least to the greatest. Every idea, every movement was from the lesser to the greater. And yet here we are in Hebrew poetry, and this poem doesn't end with this majestic eagle-like soaring through your life. Instead, it ends with a mundane walking through life. What gives? It seems to have it all backwards. Well, it turns out in this situation that walking is much better, much greater than soaring. And let me explain that, okay? When you soar through your life, when you're on this emotional or spiritual high, you're like living your life in your happy place. You're just in continual bliss. And those moments in life are great, but you're not really noticing what's going on in the world around you. When you're running, you notice a little bit more, but you're still going so fast that other people's problems and pain and the issues of life don't really affect you because you're just kind of cruising right by them. But when you walk, everything changes. When you walk, you see. You see people. You see their problems. You see pain. You see heartache. You see what God is up to in the world, and you engage And that is way more difficult than just rushing through your life, not noticing things or soaring above them. Walking is so much more difficult, but so much better, and it's far more Jesus-y, okay? Because the silence slows you down so you can engage, so you can love people, so you can walk. Yeah, so silence is great. Second thing it does, it connects us. Silence is like this 
portal spiritually that you crawl through in order to experience God on a deeper level. I have one of my favorite poets is Rumi, and he says this about silence. He says, silence is the language of God, and all else is a poor translation. Yeah, God speaks to us in the silence. You see, believing's not enough. We've been convinced it is, but it's not enough. It's a good start, but even the devil believes, okay? But you got to move past believing. I was reading of a pastor. He was being interviewed by a college student that was writing like a term paper, interviewing him all about his faith in Jesus. He was a Christian. And at the end of the interview, she goes, hey, I just got to be honest with you. I don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. It doesn't interest me a bit because it's all about believing. And I heard that and I thought, no, no, it isn't. But then I thought, oh, she's right. That's what we've turned it into. We've turned in this glorious process of having a relationship with Jesus into all about something mental in our mind, belief. It's just believing the right things. And it's not. It's such a shame. Christianity is all about experiencing God up close and personal. And silence is the vehicle that takes you there. It takes you past just believing and it takes you into the wonder of an encounter with God. It's wonderful. But don't put too much pressure on yourselves here. I can just imagine some of you going home tonight and going, okay, before I go to bed, I am going to enter into solitude and I will hear God. That's so much pressure. That's a recipe to not hear God. That's like when you know you have to get up early the next morning. For me, it's Murphy's Law. Ooh, I got to get up at five o'clock to catch that stupid six o'clock flight to San Francisco that goes out. Okay, so I got to get up maybe even at 4.30. That means I only have four and a half hours of sleep. It's already midnight. Okay, I'm going to go to bed and I have to sleep. You ever done that? You might as well not go to bed at all because you're not sleeping at that point. It's a recipe for insomnia. Don't try so hard to experience God, okay? Don't try to find God. He's not lost. He'll find you. And sure, by being intentionally silent, you are searching for God. But always remember, he makes the first step. He is always in hot pursuit of you. So enter into the holy silence. You will experience God. You will hear him. And if at first you're not hearing him, probably because your mind's racing like a howler monkey on acid or something. I don't know. That's probably a bad example. But anyway, (laughs) if your mind is just like racing, don't freak out. Just stay in the silence and meditate on the fact that you are infinitely loved by the divine. Just do that for a while. And eventually you will hear and encounter God. The silence will take you there. All right. Third thing, in the silence, you move forward. In verse 38, Jesus comes out of this time of holy silence and communion with the Father. And he instantly has a a sense of direction in his life. And that's why he says to his friends, he goes, hey, let's go to the other villages because I got to talk and preach there. He knew what to do next. I don't know if you're like me, but there are so many Monday mornings I wake up and I just feel stuck for one reason or another. I just go, what am I supposed to do next, God? What am I supposed to do next about this situation or this relationship? Or what am I supposed to do next in my life? You know, what am I supposed to do next in the church? What, what am I supposed to do? And I feel a little stuck. Well, the answer to those questions of what am I supposed to do next will never be found in the clutter of a chaotic schedule. They will always be found in the silence. In the silence, God will speak a word to you that will cut through the confusion of your life and bring you a sense of clarity and purpose for your future. 
Now, I realize that a lot of you are crazy busy right now, so you're going, time alone in silence, that sounds like heaven, but I just really don't have time. Maybe because it's like you have 100 kids or two kids that feel like 100. That's how some of you are right now. It's like, I have two, but they multiply at home. There's 100 of them, okay? Or maybe your job's a zoo, something like that. Don't use your schedule as an excuse to not enter into the silence. Did you hear me that, workaholics? Did you hear me? Don't use your schedule as an excuse not to enter into the silence because Jesus didn't. And he was busy. That's why the disciples said to him, everybody's looking for you. He had pressing needs. He had things to go, places to go, people to see, miracles to perform, sermons to preach, all this stuff. And yet he entered into the silence first so that he could move forward in his life out of a sense of peace, not out of the tyranny of the chaos that was trying to crush him. So let's move forward. Let's all, no matter how busy our schedule is, spend time in intentional silence and solitude for God. It's how you encounter him. So alonement here we come. Amen? Yeah, you said kind of a half-hearted amen to that, right? So that like didn't convince me at all. Like, we're going to enter into silence. Amen? And you go, okay, let's try that again. So alonement, here we come. Thank you, okay? I just wanted to know you heard me. Let's look at the second word now, splagitsumai, and I'm not saying that near as gutturally as it should be because I don't want to spit all over the front three rows, but let's look about this word. This is also out of Mark chapter 1, verse 40 through 45. A man with leprosy came to him, Jesus, and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant, and that's not a negative thing right there. I'll explain that later. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer sacrifices that Moses' commandment for your cleansing as a testimony to them. In these verses, Jesus heals a man of leprosy, and I won't go into how awful this disease was. You can look it up. You can Google it, especially in the time of Jesus. It was an awful disease with infection run amok and a lot of bandages that are bloody, and it caused people to be physically separated from their loved ones and social outcasts. It was just awful. But I want to focus on a few lines out of this story that are fantastic. And the first one is this line, I am willing See, back in this day of Jesus, people believed that other people contracted leprosy, this horrible disease, because they were being punished by God for some heinous sin they committed in a past life, specifically slander against somebody or gossip. So you got leprosy because you spoke evil of or about someone. So here's this man sheepishly saying to Jesus, if you are willing, you can heal me. And he's being so timid because he's thinking, you know, this guy, this Jesus, this son of God, he probably doesn't want to heal me because he's the one who gave me this leprosy, this horrible disease, to teach me a lesson about some sin that I don't even know about that I committed in a past life. So it's not likely that he's going to heal me. But Jesus says this line to him, I am willing. And there was no ifs about it. No, if I'm willing, I am willing. And this line 
is one of the most critical lines in all of the Bible because it completely changes how humankind at this time viewed God. Instead of viewing God as this vindictive heavenly being that was just waiting to dole out punishment and judgment to us, now people started to see God as a compassionate being that was just waiting to dole out mercy and kindness. It's a huge line in the Bible. And in verse 41, it states that Jesus was moved with compassion the first time he laid eyes on this guy. And that word compassion is the word that's in the title of the sermon. It's splagitsumai. And it means to be moved to one's bowels, which sounds gross, right? But it's not because the people back then believed that the bowels or your guts were the seat of your emotions and compassion and love. Kind of like we think the heart is now. So you probably got Valentine's that said, I love you with all of my heart. They would have thought, I love you with an organ? That's weird. You should say, I love you with all of my bowels, okay? Because that's what they believed back then. So if you, what it's saying in this verse is saying that Jesus is compassionate to the core of his being. That's what's being described here. So if you're ever wondering in your life, does Jesus love me? Or do people just say that to sound nice? Does Jesus see me? Does he care about me? Does he want to be around me? The answer to all those questions is a big fat yes, because he loves you with all of his guts. He is moved by the very thought of you to the core of his being. He is willing, okay? Second line that I just love out of this story, don't tell anyone. In verse 41, Jesus tells this newly cleansed leper, hey, don't tell anyone, and this seems weird to us. And it isn't the only time that Jesus did this. All through the Gospels, he's doing these miraculous healings, and then he instantly tells the person he heals, hey, let's keep this on the QT. Don't let anybody else know what I did for you. And that seems crazy. That seems like a weird way to start a movement. Wouldn't you think that the Son of Man, the Savior of the world, would perform all these miracles in order to draw a crowd and make headlines and get attention so people would flock to him so he could get the news out about God's love to the world? It just seems natural, right? And yet Jesus doesn't do that. He always does a miracle and says, hey, keep this quiet. Keep this quiet. It sounds so odd to me. But there's a reason for this because Jesus understood the mob mentality. He knew that people would flock to him, not because Jesus loved them so much, but because they wanted entertainment. They wanted the miraculous. They wanted the spectacular. They wanted a show. And Jesus was about so much more than that. Miracles were not his main priority. Sure, they're great. I mean, they're a foretaste of how things are going to be forever. They're great. Miracles are wonderful. They're great, but they're not the greatest. Jesus wants something much more for people than just miracles, just to show. He wanted them to connect with him, not just because of what he could do for them, but because of who he was. He's the lover of our souls. When you read through the Bible, you realize this. Jesus never was seeking applause. Never. He was always seeking relationship and love, always, every single time. And the third line I want to look at, last line, he was cured. This line comes in verse 42. It says of the leper, he was cured. Oftentimes in my life, and maybe in your life as a Jesus follower, people come up to me and they're mad at God. They're just generally mad at God about a lot of things. I talk up to a lot of people who are mad at God, actually. It's just kind of a gift in my life. Hey, there's Tim. I'm mad at God. Let's talk to him, okay? And they always say, hey, if God's so loving, 
why doesn't he heal everybody? You believe he heals, right? And I go, yeah. And he goes, why doesn't he heal everybody? My response might shock some of you. I always say, God does heal everybody. He doesn't cure everybody, but he heals everybody. I probably need to explain that right now, okay? Cures are awesome. Some of you have had experience where you've prayed for people. I've had these experiences. You pray for a person, and suddenly their sickness, their disease, their malady, their problem is gone. It's vanished, just like a leper having clear skin. And those are awesome times. Those are awesome times. I've had people I've prayed for come out of comas that have been miraculously healed of life-threatening diseases. I mean, it's just been amazing. And I know it's God, not me. And I'm just like, wow. But you have other times, as have I, where you pray for a person and they don't get better. They stay sick. Sometimes I've prayed for people and they've gotten sicker. Sometimes I've prayed for people and they've died. And that doesn't make you want to line up and have me pray for you, I know. But you've probably done the same thing. Please know this. Healing can come even in the absence of a cure. I've told you that before, but I want it ingrained in your mind. Healing can come even in the absence of a cure. A person can still be sick, still have cancer, still have a body that's falling apart and be completely healed. And this is why, because you pray for them, and as you're praying, they're, they're seized with this power of a great affection. God gives them something that infuses them with hope and peace in the midst of suffering. And they, it, it holds them together through their suffering. Their body is afflicted, but their heart is healed. It's amazing. I was thinking of a guy named Charles. He was an elderly guy who lived in Washington, D.C., and his pastor invited him to go to like a ministry class, like a Bible class they were doing that was really good, but Charles needed a ride. But the problem is Charles had suffered a really debilitating stroke not too long before that, and the right side of his body was nearly incapacitated, so he could hardly walk. He could hardly walk, and in fact, the pastor had to lift him and and put him in the car in order to take him to the Bible class. But the pastor said, I'll never forget the first time I pick him up, he comes out of his lower-income apartment, and he walks out, and it's slow. He's just moving really slow, barely getting to the car, but he's wearing this hat, and on the hat, all it says is, God is good. And I go, now there's a person that was not cured. He's still suffering the effects of his stroke. But he's healed. His body is a mess, but his heart is healed. Cures, when you think about it too, just think about this. I think they're actually a little overrated because they're only temporary. Think of the story of Jesus and one of his friends, Lazarus. Lazarus had died and he'd been dead three days, and then Jesus finally shows up and he resurrects him. Talk about your miraculous cure. He was cured of death, okay? He's resurrected and he's alive again after three days. He probably reeked. He probably said, good to see you again, Lazarus. Take a shower, okay? But what an amazing time. And I'm sure Lazarus was excited about his cure. I'm cured from death. I'm alive again. I get to see my sisters, my family, my loved ones, my friend Jesus and all this. But I imagine about a week or two later, maybe when he was all alone in the silence and solitude, it probably dawned on him. I'm going to die again. I'm the only person I know that's going to have to die twice. Thanks a lot, Jesus. He was probably ticked at Jesus. Are you kidding me? I'd already died. I was in glory. I was in paradise. You called me back, and now I have to die again. I didn't like the journey the first time. Cures are temporary. Sure, they make people happy. Who wouldn't want to be cured? But healings 
there's no expiration date on that. To have this experience where you're infused with God's love and peace, where you know you're not alone in the world, and when you know the worst thing in your life isn't the final thing, because that love and that peace and that hope that you've been infused with is going to carry you through anything, even death, that's heavenly. Cured people are happy, but healed people are heavenly. Let me pray for us, can I? God, please lead us all. I know this is going to be difficult, and this is a huge prayer, Lord, but please lead us all into times of alonement. Remind us to meet with you in the holy, silent times, times when we are emptied of the chaos and the clutter of urgent things, times to have our strength renewed, times to forge deep connection with you, times to hear your voice, and times to receive direction about our future, Lord. Wisdom that cuts through the confusion. Thank you, Lord. And thank you so much for being a God of splagitsumai. You love us with all your guts, Lord, from the core of your being. And you are a God that's not after applause. You're after our hearts, Lord. And you are a God that often cures but always heals. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. That's what we say in response to that. We love you back. In your name we pray. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Have a glorious rest of your, for some of you, many of you, a three-day weekend, like my wife and I, so thank you for that. And if you have to work Monday, I'm sorry, but we'll see you here next Sunday, and we'll finally make it into Mark chapter 2. God bless. Have a great day.